Hello and welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast that challenges the conventional thinking on farming, ranching, and food systems. Today, we're diving deep into the innovative practices of regenerative farming with our expert guest, Ben Notterman. From the trials of managing paddocks in the rain to exploring the potential of tech collars for cattle tracking, we're set for an enlightening discussion. Before we get to that, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Harris family and wild-ass soap for just a few minutes. A couple of weeks ago, I asked in a Spotify poll how many of you considered using CBD products as part of your daily routine. Most of you have not, and that's okay. You can get the benefits of CBD without smoking it or eating it. For example, if you've ever used a roll-on like Icy Hot or something like that to soothe your sore muscles, the stuff is even better with some CBD in it. When I wake up with a sore neck or like today when I'm tired and sore from throwing calves all weekend, which is something I learned I might be a little bit too old now to shape to do much anymore, a pain-relieving CBD relief stick provides near-instant, long-lasting relief. You can get one today by clicking the link in the description and using the code REBOOT for 10% off your first order. Support for this episode is also provided by my amazing patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher and my subscribers on Spotify. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast and encourage me to continue making great content for y'all, smash that subscribe button. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to Ranching Reboot. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please leave us a review or send me an email at redhillsrancher at gmail.com. Your feedback helps me provide you with more great content. Thank you for your support. Last thing, if you're tired of hearing the ads and the intro reads and you just want the podcast starting with the intro music, that's what subscribers get. So go check it out. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And that's a cool hat. Tell me about that hat. Um, I actually saw it on social media somewhere. It's a barbecue company out of uh, Texas. And I was like, I got to have that. And I looked them up, found them, and bought it. And I've never used any of their spices, but I've got their hat because I thought it was cool. Okay, cool. <laughs> I have to figure out how to get you a ranching reboot hat one of these days. Oh, I'd like that. That'd be great. Yeah. So, how things been up there for you? Ah, uh, started off really dry, and now extraordinarily wet, like challenging wet. I, yes, yes, I, I definitely feel that. So yesterday morning. I had to haul a couple to the processor, had some processor dates. And, uh, you know, when you got processor dates, they're not going to wait for you. They don't care that it's raining and that you had to go catch the cows. So I get out to the ranch, right? And, you know, it, it's, it had already rained a little over a half inch. I had my raincoat. I had my mud boots. I parked the truck. I looked at the weather. I'm like, ah, we'll be okay for a couple hours. Go out and, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting these, this little group gathered. And it starts to rain. And of course, I have to get out and do some footwork and, you know, to get them lined out and get them moving. Yeah. So anyway, the short end of the story is, uh, yeah, I was totally soaked about two hours later by the time we had them sorted and in the trailer. 
and head to the processor and man it's it's weird to have it rain like that in the morning normally our rains come in late afternoon early evening or overnight it's it's not common to rain during the day and what makes it really weird is we had i woke up and it was raining it started about four o'clock this morning we got another 285 this morning yeah so the well yeah <laughs> I, I spent a couple hours, i spent about a half hour this morning out driving around went up river looked at the river looked at the creek up river and i'm like yep there's there's gonna be a big pulse of water come down the river and uh i think we might get a little flood irrigation in the yard today but i don't think it's going to come up to the house huh. <clears throat> on the on the sorry go ahead it, it just seems like it's either feast or famine with the rain. Like, you know, we go through two and a half of the driest years that we've in recorded history and, you know, seven inches of rain in June, almost eight. And now we've had over three and a half for July. Kind of, oh, well, rain will sure make a bad manager look good, I guess. <laughs> it can also make a good manager look bad if, if you don't manage, if you're not ready for it, that's. That's what happened to me on the fourth. We got um, like two and three quarters inches here uh, in a matter of forty minutes. Uh, it wow. was a yeah, some heavy, heavy thunderstorms rolled through, and uh, a couple of the groups I had them in a little bit too tight of a paddock. I didn't expect that much rain, and I'm gonna have to go throw some seed and uh, give it a good long rest. Okay, big big brown streak. <laughs> okay, for for the listeners, tell us where you're at and what it's normally like there. Sure. So we're in the northeast corner of Vermont. Uh, it's called the Northeast Kingdom, uh, where it's, the town's Hardwick. Uh, it's like 3,500 people-ish. Um, <clears throat> so we get a fair amount of precipitation. I think we're in the 43, 44-inch range. Um, get a lot of snow in the winter, and it stays all, most of the winter. Um, <clears throat> rain, usually in a quote-unquote average year, you know, you get a rainy day, one or two rainy days a week. And some overcast and then some good sun. Grass grows like no tomorrow, uh, which is which is nice. Uh, this year has been a little odd. Um, May was dry and cold. Usually we get a lot of rains in May. And then the rain like turned on the 5th or the 6th of June. And it's just been going since. It's been wild. That's about when it started raining here. So are you... Um... The only other person I can think of I've had on the podcast from that part of the world is Morgan Gold. He's he's about 30 minutes from me. And actually, he and I become friends over the last, I don't know, six months or so. So, um, yeah, he's only 30 minutes from me or so. Oh, very cool. Well, next time yes. you tell him I said hello. I certainly will. All right. So, uh, so tell me about your operation. What all do you do up there in Vermont? Um, a, a lot of bit of everything, I guess. Uh, uh, we're our, our three main enterprises on the on the operation are, are grass fed, grass finished beef. Um, <clears throat> we have a pork production enterprise, which is uh, pasture in the summertime, deep bedded pack in the winter. We feed a non GMO grain, and we have an accident an accidental uh, flock of Coopworth sheep. Very Coop accidental. Coopworth. Coop All right. So how do you have accidental sheep? We inherited a flock uh, from a friend who since passed away. That was uh, we. I think we started with six ewes and two lambs and we are now at 55 56 ewes and i don't even know 50 odd lambs um they're like rabbits they, they <laughs> multiply so and that that was 2016 we started with six ewes okay yeah 
is that enterprise working for you? Um, not uh, probably not. Uh, if we were solely going to the sale barn with our lambs, uh, we're we're a direct to we do most of our our sales are direct to consumer, uh, home delivery, pickup at the farm style, um, and also stores, butcher shops, that kind of stuff. So we're we're much more direct to consumer than we are in the like the wholesale, um, livestock end of the market. If that okay. makes sense. I mean, yeah. That makes sense. What kind of cattle are you running? We run Angus, Hereford crosses, so British breeds, some black nose Charlet, pretty much whatever I could find here in the country. Red, black, um, blonde, doesn't really matter. Uh, in this portion of the U.S., um, they're all red on the inside. Yeah, like customers really don't care what the wrapper looked like because they don't get to see it anyway. True. You know, I... Not to take anything away from the CAB program, because it, it did do a lot of wonderful things for beef and beef marketing and for the Angus breed. But I think we've just over-rotated so far. You know, it, you listen to the, the, the Angus Association, NCBA, and, and all those folks talk, and you're like, oh, yeah, nothing makes it through that isn't, you know, doesn't meet these criteria. Like, okay, so the guys that peel the hide when it's black, they paint the toes and the inspector like way down the plant. He's looking at that to say that it meets criteria. I've had guys tell me that they just, they just look at the carcass. Like it, it's not even a mark. Sometimes I, it seems so easy to cheat that, right? It seems so easy to cheat that and have that diluted. And I don't think the customer really understands what they're buying anymore. I think they've been lied to with what they're buying. I mean, yeah, where, where do you draw that line of distinction? <clears throat> Here in the Northeast, a lot of dairy farms are crossing their Holsteins with, with an Angus sire, throws a big, big black calf, maybe a white underbelly, but you can't tell me that's the same as an Angus on Angus or, you know, a, a black baldy or something along those lines. Just looking at the, the frame and the carcass differences, it's, it's kind of head scratching. Yeah, an Angus Holstein probably won't marble or finish very well, but they'll get pretty big and pretty lean. They'll they'll actually they'll actually do well. We used to we used to finish grass fed Holstein steers. So that before we switch the switch the British breeds, so it, it just takes longer. I was going to ask, does, how much longer? Uh, thirty three to thirty six months. Okay, what's I'm sitting here thinking that that's, you know, that's kind of about my growth cycle. I mean, that's, that's when my boys are finally, you know, finally getting their full size and finally, you know, having their big boy pants on, you know, it's not their second summer. It's got to be their third summer. And that's just the way it is, you know, and what kind of disadvantage does that put a guy like me or, you know, somebody that's, you know, doing the beef on dairy, that's got a 30 to 36 month finishing cycle puts us at a pretty strong disadvantage to the guys that, you know, have genetics, have genetics and a sugar beet pulp or a, a corn ethanol facility next door. And they get that stuff and they get, you know, the byproduct for dirt cheap. It's, it's an interesting problem to overcome, but then again, we're, we got to differentiate ourselves in the market. And there was a thread on Twitter. I can't remember if it was yesterday or the day before. Not going to call anybody out, but 
it was it was somebody saying i'm tired of everybody in ag saying that you know their way is better quit telling people to do it different quit telling people your way is better there's room for all kinds of producers at the grocery store i mean she has a point but on the other hand if we don't start you know calling out some of these practices ecosystem destroying practices soil erosion you know the the spraying of all the of all the chemicals, the reliance on high energy feed to produce cattle as fast as we do. Sooner or later, those things are going to start winding down and coming to an end because the customers, the next generation of beef consumers, your consumers, your your customers, my customers, they want a product that's traceable. They want a product they can trust. They want to know that it's not full of antibiotics. That it didn't have a bunch of crap sprayed on the food that you know that that animal ate they want to know those things and that kind of traceability is impossible with any of the big four like i would i'll throw down the gauntlet and challenge tyson cargill uh marfrig or jbs let's see your transparent traceability from the calf to the plate every shot record every move record let's see it because i can do that you can do that. And we do that because that's what our customers want, right? Yeah, that, <clears throat> the traceability is, is, has really come to the surface on, on our end. Um, and like you say, shake the hand of the person or the farmer who feeds you or the rancher who feeds you. And people love that connection and then love that level of trust. I mean, they buy into your story. They get like invested in what you do. So that transparency and traceability just adds one more feather in our cap as a way to differentiate ourselves from what's on the grocery store shelves. You know, the phrase shake the hand that feeds you. I, I put a lot of time and thought into that and it never occurred to me to trademark it. And honestly, I don't think I should. I just want everybody to understand it. You know, shake the hand that feeds you. Number one, and I, it's so simple because it works for everybody. You can use it on vegans. You can use it on vegetarians. You can use it on carniv hardcore carnivores. It's <laughs> awesome because e even vegans, they, their arguments start to disappear when you tell them, okay, shake the hand that feeds you. I support your choice to be vegan. I fully support your right and your choice to be vegan. May not agree with it because I think it's a stupid choice. But tell me why. Explain to me why you're vegan. And, well, I guess when it comes right down to it, a lot of them are vegan because they don't like how animals are treated and they don't like, anim they don't like the environmental destruction from animal agriculture. But then when you tell them things like, you know, about the renewable fuel standard that we're cutting down rainforest to plant palm oil plantations, and then they start looking at what palm oil's in. Why do we have to go to palm oil? Because somebody decided that it was unhealthy to fry shit in beef tallow and pork lard? Like, okay, that's unhealthy. So now we're going to cut down some rainforest and plant palm oil trees. That makes sense. You know, and does animal agriculture drive rainforest destruction? Sure. Okay, there's some of that going on. In Brazil, they're cutting down rainforest so they can plant corn and soybean fields to feed cows and feedlots. So is animal, agri 
agriculture destroying the planet? There's a strong argument to be made that there's a lot of environmental damage. But the flip side of the coin is we can also heal that damage with a lot of this, with agriculture, with, with practices that heal soil. And that's, maybe that's the next thing we need to start trying to tackle and, and figuring out a catchphrase for. Because well, she the, feeds you as a catchphrase. It's, it's not the cow, it's the how. I've, I've seen that one a bunch, you know? So it's like, we can we know cattle are a tool in our quiver to help improve soil and, and <clears throat> heal the land, right? So, but they can also be a giant sledgehammer in a finished nail situation, which is what it is in like the giant feedlots and the deforestation. So that pendulum can swing hard either way. And it's just which way we swing it. What do you, what do you see the future of protein production going towards? Do you think we're going to continue down the path of consolidation and commoditization of everything? Do you think things are going to stabilize or do you think we're going to start seeing more people more people adopting regenerative practices and getting away from the high input commodity farming. Well, obviously I'd like to see the latter because that's, that's a segment I'm, I'm in, but um, I, I'd, li I'd like at least to see more of a regional food supply, you know, like new England is where we are. There's a lot of people. We have a high, high capacity to produce food. It's so if we can build regional food systems that aren't drawing from, I know we can't grow citrus here, avocados. Like, obviously, there's some things that people aren't going to be willing to give up. Well, to... they grow those in Texas and in Florida. True. But I've, I've yet to see it happen in Vermont. <laughs> in Vermont. Um, you well, know, so it's it. The point would be we can grow that stuff a lot closer to home than importing our avocados from Central America and our limes and, you know, and whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So if we can build a regional food system, I think that's going to be as things maybe get fossil fuels stay high inputs are high and people producers maybe start seeing the impact of of where their dollars are going and what they're spending it on as far as inputs narrow down and and, and really buckle down and say okay what how can i affect this regionally how can i supply my region instead of um pushing out you know beef to California, beef from California to the East Coast or East Coast beef to the West Coast. It doesn't make any sense. So if we can figure that out, I would love to see a more regional food system where um, like my, the proteins we produce go, you know, into Boston or New York City or some other metro area in between to, to end up <clears throat> on somebody's plate. That would, that would mean the most to me, I guess, in, in a new food system. I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to build our new food system in parallel with the existing structures. You know, buying patterns tend to be set fairly early on in life. You know, this, the same, uh, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say that at having a hard time kind of expressing what it, what's in my head right now, but it's like certain generations have different shopping patterns and different spending patterns, right? Like, you know, the boomers have their places they like to go. You know, the the resorts, the, the the grocery stores, the sporting goods stores, you know, they have their place they like to go, which is different from where the millennials are shopping, which is different from where the Zoomers are shopping. And as we're seeing these buying patterns change, I think the legacy, I think there's a lot of some legacy institutions and legacy businesses 
that are going to fail to adapt and we're going to see them go away because they're, they just can't adapt to the new, new paradigm of how, of how the, the young people these days want to spend their money and who they want to give it to. You know, it's been funny. It's been funny over the last three years. Everybody had to stay home for a couple of weeks and a bunch of people started working from home. And well, then Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk start launching rockets. Well, people are pissed. Okay. They're billionaires. Well, how'd they get their money? Jeff Bezos makes his money by selling you crap on the internet. Everybody that bought anything off Amazon in the last three years should have absolutely nothing to say about Jeff Bezos launching a rocket because you are the problem. You are part of the problem. I am part of the problem. Like I'm about ready to order some more shit on Amazon this afternoon. I, I, I'm definitely part of the problem, man. Not that I, I'm a big internet shopper, but I definitely ordered in the last three years. As we're getting ready for this, this really upset me. So about like 10 minutes before, before you showed up as, you know, double checking my audio equipment. So made sure everything has worked. I picked up my headphones that I've had for less than a month and they fall apart. $150 set of headphones. One of the ear cups just falls off. Plastic broke, screw came out. Like I haven't abused these things. I haven't like they've been dropped once. I have them on a little, I have a little cord keeper so it can't hit the ground. Like it. So what do I do? I send it back to Amazon. I get in touch with the manufacturer. You know, they don't, they manufacturers don't care about building a good product anymore. And now I'm thinking of John Deere. It's it's kind of clear to me that John Deere just exists to farm the farmers anymore. You know, parts and service have just gone so sky high and you can't work on it. I mean, if you could, you probably can't get parts because global parts snafus. Anyway, I keep trying to get off track. Uh, <laughs> I want to know, uh, it's, tell me some more about your farm. Is, has it been in the family or are you on leased land? What's what has your family been there for a while? Uh, let's see. My folks bought this farm in 79. Uh, they started dairy farming in 74 in Bradford, Vermont, which is like a little hill town. Um, the type of the type of place where their cows have to have legs shorter on one side and longer on the other side because the hills are so steep Okay. to walk crossways. You know, uh, I think they had 20 there. They bought the place we're on now in 79 i showed up around 82 so um yeah they milked cows till the late 80s uh they got out before the dairy buyout happened they saw the writing on the wall and said okay time to exit they switched to re registered replacement heifers um did pretty well with that through the early 90s and then everybody who got out in the dairy buyout were then allowed the moratorium on on cows on their farm was up they everybody started on registered replacement heifers moratorium on so so if they if that so i my understanding is if you went out in the dairy in the federal dairy buyout program in the late 80s there was three or four years you couldn't have any cows on your farm you couldn't have any females on your farm so there was a giant oversupply and this is how it's been explained to me and then so you had to have no no cows 
no dairy cows. You could do beef and whatever else, but you couldn't have any milking uh, cows on your place until the contract was up for three years because there was a drastic oversupply of milk. And then when those three years were up, everybody started back into the register or into the replacement heifer game. And that's when my folks shifted to grass fed Holstein beef. That was, that was early 90s. So we were buying wet calves from dairy farms, you know, two, three days old and raising them up to three years, 36, 40 months, whatever it was. Um, yeah, so uh, we're, we're, we were a 60 cow dairy farm and now we're, uh, we're making beef on that farm and not milking cows. We've got me really interested now about, about the dairy thing that happened in the 80s because I guess I don't know anything about it. And, you know, it, if you can't speak a whole lot more of that, that, that's fine. And hopefully I'll find, I'll tell you what, if anybody's out there listening that knows and has like stories about that 80, late 80s and early 90s uh, dairy buyouts and moratoriums and, and market collapse, write in to me, redhillsrancher at gmail.com. I want to talk to you because that sounds, that sounds interesting and I'd like to know some more about it. Yeah, I wish I knew more about it. I'm just, these are table stories, you know, dinner table stories that my, my dad has told me over the years. Um, and I don't know if it was a North, the Northeast Dairy Compact or if it was one of the other moves around that time to, to save the milk market and the dairy industry. That So I don't know if it was regional or if it was nationwide. That I'm not, not sure on. Well, the, I mean, the time period definitely makes sense. Late 80s. Um, you know, I wasn't real old back then, <laughs> uh, but I do remember, I do remember at least three, if not four dairies in my County, small dairies. I probably, you know, under a hundred head. Uh, and even in grade school, primary school, I think it was maybe either second or fourth grade. We went and took a tour to a dairy that was not very far outside of town and they're gone. And they've been gone since at least the year, you know, well before the year 2000. So I'd, it would be interesting to, to talk to some guys that were around back then and see what really happened and, and what it was like to kind of navigate through. Well, my dad has told me story. My dad's now 84. So he's told me stories of, you know, the 20% interest in the eighties and he's getting nervous looking at what, where we're at now and comparing it to then. So we're, picking and choosing and being very careful uh, and playing things very conservatively. My dad's not quite that old, but he's almost like, very, very close. And he too remembers the eighties. He was, he got his start in the mid eighties when money was super expensive. So, you know, and, and that shaped a lot of the way the ranch is now, you know, when he took it over, there wasn't money to go buy more land. There wasn't money to buy, equipment because interest rates were, you know, 15, 18, 20% for anything, even ag related. Um, yeah. So now thinking about that, that explains why, why some of the things were done in 84, 85, 86 <laughs> and, and the way they were done. So I've said for years that, you know, the reason the ranch kind of started as a custom grazing operation is because data had pretty limited startup capital. And I'm just now kind of dawning on me that that was in the mid eighties. And that's why that's one of the reasons why our, our, our kind of our family culture is very debt adverse and very risk averse 
is my grandparents lived through the 30s and my dad lived through the 80s all trying to farm. And I guess I, you know, my family also made it through the 50s, you know, the big crunch in the 50s here trying to farm. I can't, I can't imagine the challenges of like the 30s and then of the 80s. And, you know, if I think we thinking about what we have now and the challenges we face, I feel like they're entirely different challenges, but not quite as scary because we have so many more tools in our quiver. Um, a lot more information at, at, you know, at our fingertips versus obviously the 30s and then again at the 80s. So I don't know. It's it's a different feel, I think, but it's still there's that pressure's there. I think I think we're still in a time period that historians are going to look back on and say, you know, the historians will look back on in reference, like the Dust Bowl, like the drought in the 50s, like the farm crisis in the 80s. I, I think we're in one of those right now. And I don't think that we're going to really realize it until we're a couple of years out and give it a name. Just a thought, like things, things were too stable for too long in ag. Things, money was way too cheap yes. to, to rent. And I feel that that has lulled a lot of operations into a false sense of security. And now the rubber meets the road and you got to make some hard decisions potentially. And some of it is they're kicking, they've been kicking the can down the road so long. So the economy really collapsed in 2008. You know, we had another, we had another bump in 14 and the economy was never really allowed to complete its collapse and reset because of the quantitative easing policies, which didn't really do a whole lot for guys like you and I, but it sure did increase the bottom line of a lot of folks on wall street and a lot of stock portfolios. I mean, it, it did wonderful things for people that had a lot of money invested in the stock market smartly. Not a whole lot for guys like you and me, but it did make money cheap. And, you know, yeah, it was nice going into John Deere and getting 0.9. Hey, that's pretty cool. You know, it's nice going to Polaris and getting 0.9 or 1.9 or going to the bank and only having to pay 3% to go buy some cows. That was great. But I tell you what, when those rate increases started coming in, things got scary real quick. And, you know, looking at, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine percent interest rates for a lot of stuff. Things aren't trading. I think, I think nine, 10% interest right now is going to be as catastrophic long-term as the 18s and twenties were in the eighties. I think you're right. <clears throat> I mean, that's money costs real money to use now. And that, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a hard change and a hard, a hard shift for some folks, I think. Because they've just been, like you said, kicking it, you know, keep nudging it out, nudging it out. One thing I think everybody would agree that's changed majorly. I noticed it in January and it probably happened before then because sometimes I'm unobservant, but I noticed all the social media platforms like, and this is Facebook was really bad through the whole month of February. I would log into my personal page. And I would get like one of three, one of four sponsored content. Okay. That's not too bad. You know, 25% ads, you're going to get that watching network television, 42 minute show, 18 minute ads in an hour. You're welcome. So that's pretty much normal. 
so then I switched over to my Red Hills Rancher profile. Dude, my feed for Red Hills Rancher was 90% sponsored. Sponsored or ads. Anything I tried to post, whether it was on Facebook or Instagram, I post it, and of course, three seconds later, you get that pop-up. You want to boost this post? You want to boost this post? If I didn't boost a post, less than 100 people would see it. Didn't matter what I posted. Less than 100 people would see it. So my theory is all the social media and tech companies were just a little bit late to the game because, I mean, last year I was getting rate increases for my, you know, on my line of credit. Fact of life. I think all these tech companies, like, they don't have an idea how to make money. Like, they didn't really have a plan to make money. They just had a plan to grow their user base and maybe figure that out later. <laughs> and now that all the venture capital and all the investments dried up because money's not free anymore. Every platform has been scrambling to try to figure out how to increase cash flow. I, mean, I signed up for Twitter blue, a couple bucks a month to have a check mark by my name, increased post visibility. Has that been worth it? Yes. Like, do I feel bad about giving Elon Musk eight bucks a month for a blue check mark on Twitter by my name? Nope. I sure don't. I don't feel any worse than my $20 a month chat GPT subscription that helps me write show notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, the tools are out there. We ought to use them. But anyway, so I, how, what did, you grew up there in Vermont on the yep. farm. So tell me about your young adult life, your education, how you came back to the farm. So uh, graduated high school, went to uh, University of Maine. I uh, got a degree in forestry and forest management. Uh, worked as a forester for some years in northern Maine, uh, well, for a year, and then I, I did some stuff here in Vermont. Uh, when I was in northern Maine, it was it was seven hours to anywhere, and I was like, it was seven hours to like Boston or seven hours to go home to visit my folks, and I was like, eh, maybe this isn't quite the right spot for me, so I came home to Vermont uh started a few different businesses was kind of helping out on the farm at that point we were only finishing maybe 25 steers a year we had a very strong farmers market presence we were doing five five farmers markets a weekend uh between my dad and i uh pedal and meat both beef and pork and i had a, a firewood processing business and so it kind of evolved like slow steps back into the farm role full-time um then I, I took a job from 2014 to 2019 teaching uh, at a uh, high school tech center, uh, teaching forestry and land management and far and running the farm full time. So that <clears throat> that was a challenge. I was two 40 hour a week jobs or more. Um, and that wasn't really sustainable. So I'm no longer teaching and I'm just playing in the ag field. And that was that was teaching in a, in a government run school. Uh, just like our, uh, like a regional tech center. I don't know what New York calls it. BOCES. I don't know. It's like, you know, vacation vocations like welding or uh, HVAC or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Votech. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I had a full day program. It was a really cool program. I just couldn't manage both the farm and that and have any level of sanity or energy <laughs> at all. So. I don't think it'd be, I don't think I could be a classroom teacher. 
Unless well, the classroom was the pasture. <laughs> the, the, the woods were our classroom. Like they, it was really cool. They, it was a full day immersion program. So we were from eight to two thirty or eight to two. We were inside when it was crappy outside. We were logging, producing maple syrup, doing forest management stuff. So it was a lot of outside hands-on stuff. Uh, I, I'm also not a very classroom oriented person. I'm a learn, learn with the hands and learn by doing type person. So if it, it fit my style, well, like I said, it just wasn't sustainable to keep investing that much energy into both. So 2019 was like the, the switch. I went to ranching for profit and, um, that opened my, yeah, cue the bell. Uh, um, sorry, I should have warned you. Um, that's that funny. really, that really opened my eyes. To like I'm on this, I'm sitting. So one of the gentlemen in the class uh, from Australia, he came up for for this class and been through it a whole lot of times. Uh, it was the last class Dave Pratt taught before handing it off to um, Dallas. And this was 2019. 20 would have been February of 2019. Okay, so yeah. you taught the last. You were at the last one while Dave owned the company, and I went in the fall of 2019 to the first one that Dallas did after he bought it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Huh. Um, so this, this gentleman, Nigel from, from Australia, who's a good friend of Dave and down there, they have uh, grazing for profit, which is a similar sister school. Uh, I'm not even going to attempt the Australian accent because I'll get hate mail and you might too. Uh, <laughs> but he said, you're, you're sitting on the fence. You've got the barbed wire jammed so far between your ass cheeks. He goes, you're on one side or the other, or it's going to cut you in half. Like, so that, that, that really stuck with me. And he said it much more eloquently, you know, with the Australian accent and all. But um, so he's like, you're, you're really in the middle. You need to get one side of the fence or the other. You're in or you're out. This, this half thing is really going to make you uncomfortable, which it was. So that was like the, the cue to really examine what I was doing and where I was investing my energy. And then I didn't renew my teaching contract for 1920. So that was, that was the point. Okay. And then I imagine in March, 2020, you felt really great about that decision. I would not have been able to teach forestry over zoom. No way. <laughs> so how do, how do you teach a hands-on, like teach how to run chainsaws and skitters and big heavy equipment via, how do you do that via zoom? I, I, I'm not sure that's even possible. So yeah, I, I, as far as that goes, I stepped out at the right time. So yeah, I'll maintain 2019 was the last good year that any of us had. Well, sales were good in 20 and 21 and 22. So there, there were, there were up, upswings to that time period. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm just thinking as a whole, like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Prosperity of prosperity of society, prosperity of the, you know, the country, how easy it was to get things. Yep. Get supplies. And prices, especially prices. I mean, it, it seems like things have doubled in three years. I mean, I would agree. Not, not, not necessarily fuel, but parts. It seems like parts have doubled in three years. Food has doubled in three years. Um, so tell me, tell me why grass finished beef is important to you. Am well, <clears throat> we're, we're a long way from any real sizable grain belt. So looking at our just our geographic area, what can we produce here? And what can I what can I feed my critters here that is grown here? And it's not grain. So 
Uh, and what do we have a lot of is grass. So that that was it was an economic decision before it was a um, like soil health or regenerative ag decision for us. So we've we've been grass fed since in the well in the t say early two thousands at, at the bare minimum with the wet calves. They did see milk replacers, so it's we weren't like true true grass fed because they weren't you know nursing on their mother cow because we were buying wet calves. So there was a little bit of you know, a few scoops of calf grain, not medicated, but just calf grain to get them to transition over from milk replacer to get their rumen going. And then once they were weaned, there was no grain. So say from what, eight, 10 weeks on nothing. So it was, we were kind of, we kind of had to blend, had to blend it at that point, as far as what, what we were marketing. Um, it worked and we sold a lot of Holstein grass fed beef that way. And then, so again, it was it wasn't that it was it was an economic decision at that point versus being all regenerative, regenerative, e or whatever whatever we want to call ourselves now. But now I've like the soil health and the grass production and the methods have really cued or uh, piqued my interest, and that's kind of why I'm still doing it, along with the economic reasons. Did you hear my conversation that I had with Hobbs? came out on the podcast I guess it's the current episode i'm if, a week behind if, if you didn't, that, that's fine um he has a great quote our friend patrick actually clipped this and and has it on tiktok um hobbs toward the end of our conversation he said i don't give an f about soil health anymore i don't care about it anymore i don't want to hear about it anymore because soil health is just a teensy little part it's just one of those benefits that happens when you graze properly and you manage your land properly. And I've been kind of thinking about that for about the last week. And he's right. It's still a target to hit, but it's not the end goal. Like there's, there's no such thing as a soil health end goal because it's part of a process to see how good you can make things and how low input you can make things. Like I, that's the fun of regenerative agriculture to me. Like, let's see how little money we can spend and see how few of things we can do just with gentle nudges here and there to make this better. Exactly. That's, I, I guess I'm kind of in the same camp then because I don't know all the minutia of what the microbes are doing and if they're doing this or making that. I'm not, I should be better or more knowledgeable at that, but I just look at what the ground is producing what my cattle are eating. Does it look better than the last time they were there? Does it look better than they did last summer? Um, so that's that's my measure of soil health is uh, what am I seeing on the top? And if it looks if it looks like I want to eat it, well, the top is an indicator of what's going on in the bottom. So like that is like the the quick snapshot. Are we doing the right process? And I think in my mind that makes the most sense to me. Um, I'm sure there's interesting numbers to back everything up. But do our customers really care or do they want to know that they're eating uh, really good grass, getting moved daily or very frequently, paying attention to you know erosion and all the other things on the surface? Do they really, I don't know if I could sell beef to a customer if I say, guess what the microbes are doing in the soil? Like there's that slight disconnect between the walking protein and what's going on in the soil in the customer's mind. Yeah, that's true. You know, they'll 
and I imagine there's customers that want to know that want to know everything. And there's some that are going to be happy to just take your word when you say, yeah, it, it's natural. It's grass fed. We don't fertilize. We don't spray anything. No hormones, nothing, no hormones, no antibiotics. It's, it's, it's as close to a natural animal that you would find in nature as possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of big podcasters. I hate to throw out, I like, I hate to name drop Joe Rogan, but he is one of them. And what I'm talking about is, you know, he's always talking about how he loves to eat elk and why elk is a good meat that it's, you know, from the wild and it's eating, you know, it, it's from the wild and it's natural. And yeah, it's lean because animals don't store any more fat than absolutely necessary in nature. I mean, it's economy. And you know, what, what you're doing, what I'm trying to do is that analog, right? Okay. You can hunt deer here by putting out a corn feeder and planting a food plot and putting your deer blind a hundred yards away. Do people call that hunting? Yes. Do I call that hunting? I generally call that a bait and a shoot hunting. Like if the kind of hunting I would like to see somebody do out on the ranch is let's get a compact, let's get a recurve bow and you go stalk that deer in the pasture. Like I would, I wouldn't charge somebody to come do that. I would almost pay money (laughs) to see somebody do that because that's hard. I mean, it's, you know, and hunters think that, I don't know how I got off on this. You know, a hunter's like, you know, if they don't get one every time they go out to the woods, they're going to be disappointed. You know, the lions in Africa, they have like a 20% success rate. Cougars have like a 20% success rate. Bobcats, wolves, coyotes, even hawks have like 20%, you know, 20, 30% success rates on their hunts. You know, they'll make pass after pass and take shot after shot on prey and not get it. It's hard. It's supposed to be hard. Oh, but what I'm saying is we're raising animals that are more content in their natural environment and that have one bad day in their life. I, even when we work calves, you know, don't like to show a lot of that on social media because there's an animal rights activist around every corner. And sometimes it's kind of hard to explain like, how do you really have to throw that calf down that hard? No, probably not. But we've been at this for four hours. Everybody's tired. The calf's a little stressy. You do what you got to do. But then you put it in context to somebody and you're like, look, we're taking 200 basically brand new babies to the doctor's office for the first time. You don't think there's going to be a little bit of crying going on? Because it's going to happen. But taking our animals out of a pasture and putting them in a building or surrounded by steel standing on concrete and hauling everything to them that all they have to do is walk up to the feed bunk and put their head in and just go to town, that's not natural. You know, I have a good idea of how you graze your cows. Like you take your cows from the pasture, you put them in a trailer, you take them to the processor, right? I kind of am starting to have a problem with some of the larger quote grass fed operations 
that's still a feedlot and you're feeding corn silage. Okay. Okay, fine. Technically, that's a grass. But we are not doing the same thing. And and please don't please don't try to tell me you are. Because if you're if you're feeding that animal silage and hay and it's still standing in a feedlot, you haven't done anything. You haven't moved the needle. You're not saving the environment. You're not providing a better life for those cows. And they're not on a better diet because you're feeding them the same thing every day. I, I don't know. I, I can eat tacos. I can eat pizza. Even if you gave me a nutritionally balanced pizza that met all of my nutritional needs for the day. And that's all I had to eat for four months. I'd probably be sick somehow. And that's what we do to our cows. And we wonder why we have health problems. I, what I'm saying is I don't think it's healthy to eat the same thing every day, day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out. We need variety. Our animals need variety. And it's a lot easier for our animals to find that out in the pasture. Absolutely. Absolutely. The variation, variation, I think is key. I mean, they might be for our local area, you know, we lots of orch orchard grass and clover, and then there might be in the wetter spots, reed canary, and then there's, you know, vetch. So they, they get like that balanced salad bar type situation, which, you know, uh, variation is good. I think. Are most of your, I want to, I want to ask, like what native pasture grass is in that part of the world, or is there any left? It's, it's, uh, it's orchard grass. It, we're, we're a heavy orchard grass area. Um, red and white clover, uh, purple vetch, that kind of, that kind of mix. So, um, there's, we don't have a lot of fescue that hasn't made its way up this way. It, I don't know if it's, uh, the seed salesmen weren't as good or <laughs> who knows, but um, it's, we, we, our native pastures do really well and it's mo predominantly orchard grass. Um, there are some, some rye taking and taking hold and gaining popularity here, like perennial rye. And then obviously uh, reed canary, if you graze it early and often, it's pretty good before you get it, before it gets to the real stemmy stocky um, straw type situation. Sounds like I'm not familiar with orchard grass and I probably should be. It's just not coming to me right now. That's the cool season grass, right? We're pre predominantly cool season. So our, our warm season, our like early August slump is, is a pretty growth slump is a pretty big slump because we're predominantly cool season. And for me, August is when my warm seasons are headed into third phase and they're, and they're putting up stems and seed heads and, and really building that root mass. And I, you know, there's a point here. It's kind of around generally August, like late August into September when it's hot, it's dry. My cool seasons are done. It's too hot for the cool season grasses and forbs and the warm seasons are in phase three and stem and seed head. So like the nutrition kind of toward the end of the summer really falls off. But then as we get into fall, if there's any moisture at all in the fall, we'll get a green flush of cool season. And if we have a, you know, if we have a cool, damp winter, 
I don't have to supplement hardly at all because I'll grow just phenomenal amount of cool season grass. So that helps. So tell me what your winters are like. How how tough is winter to deal with? Um, it's it's definitely a challenge. Uh, we can see temps down to minus thirty, minus forty, plus plus wind at times, like when it's really cold. Um, <clears throat> January is typically like January, early February. We'll see twenty below nights and sometimes uh, stretches where it doesn't, you know, just gets to zero. Um, and we get snow usually in the first part of December and it stays the whole winter in a quote unquote normal winter. Uh, the last bunch of winters we've had, the snow was a bit slow to come or we had big, big rain events like in early January or end of December instead of, instead of cold and snow. So I suppose you could graze here year round and I'm not saying you can't do that here, but it, it's a big challenge because we get a, a massive amount. Of, we also get icing and that makes it, I think the animal would expend more energy trying to find forage than to uh, what it would gain from finding that forage. So that's <clears throat> typically here, every, all the cattle go to either winter yards or in, there's a, a large amount of um, now empty dairy barns they're not milking anymore as the dairy markets have shifted um so there's there's lots of housing and there's lots of farmers who still like putting up feed so there's a lot of feed available whether that's grass corn whatever depending on your your markets so that's um pretty much everything comes in we get like four foot deep frost five foot six foot so also winter water is a challenge um unless you have the infrastructure in place for it so just seems simpler. Just put them in a barn. As far as far as the operator goes, absolutely. Yep. Okay. All right. Are Are you ready to talk about your collars? Sure. All right. You know, yeah. Yeah. Where yeah, do you want to do start? I, I don't know. Um. So I have the no fence virtual collars. This is a like a trial test project or a, a pilot project here in Vermont um, with obviously no fence, uh, the Lintelac Foundation, the Dairy Innovation Center. So it's, it's uh, I got approached and said, I was asked, is, is this anything you'd be interested in trying? And I went, absolutely. Let's, let's see if we can make this work. So right now I have 64 six weight calves or yearlings, I should say, um, with the collars on. Uh, and it, it's so far so good. So, so I didn't seek them out, seek this project out. It kind of fell in my lap. Um, we kind of are, we're known for doing things a little bit outside the box and willing to try off the wall ideas uh, at least once, if not twice um, and see, see how it shakes out. So I was approached by Dan Smith, who's uh, in the Dairy Innovation Center uh, and, uh, and, a, and a former grazing specialist, Kimberly Hagen here. Uh, she's at UVM Extension or formerly with UVM Extension um as to as i have a larger scale pilot test here so kind of just fell in my lap and we're running with it now okay and you've had um how long let's <laughs> sorry uh i actually just looked at our grazing chart we turned them out on may 21st and that was after uh about five days of of training in a in a training paddock so they started grazing with the collars on may 21st so pretty new Okay. So something like six, six, seven weeks in. Yep. 
six weeks. Yep. Okay. So, um, you said a training paddock, right? <clears throat> so, uh, I, I did a, a fair bit of, of uh, internet research on how uh, to use the no fence and set up, <clears throat> and set up the training on the no fence collars. Uh, they've actually got a pretty robust uh, YouTube training regiment for the operator, which is super handy. So this technology originates in Norway and <clears throat> is now just making its way to this side of the pond. Uh, I guess it's been around 10 or so years in development over uh, in Europe. And it's just making its way this way. So the training paddock, uh, I've got a probably a two and a half acre small pasture uh, that I have high tensile fence, uh, hot wire. And <clears throat> so we put these calves in, into this paddock with, um, with the collars on all activated, you know, all registering on the app, by the way, there's an app on your phone. You can move the cows with your phone. It's pretty wild. Um, and you set one, one virtual boundary. And so they have hard fences on three sides and then they learn the auditory tone and then followed up by the electrical pulse in this hard hard fenced area, and it's an internal boundary. So we're we're actually using these collars as a replacement for daily poly wire setup and takedown. Okay. So I'm not there. Our trial is inside a three wire high tensile uh, pasture, so it's not we're not at risk of them wandering into the road if the battery dies on the or something catastrophic fails like that. They're still contained. We're using them essentially strip grazing them with, with the collars as their front and back fence. Okay. So just to kind of go back, it sounds like it works pretty similar to some of the other ones I've heard of on the market where, you know, it's a device they wear around their neck. Yep. And some sort of a GPS chip inside. And when they get close to the boundary, the program boundary, it's going to give like an increasing audio alert. And then if the animal continues and challenges the boundary, it gives a shock. That's that's right. And you just said it way better than my long-winded <laughs> diatribe there. Um, yeah, so there, there, there's a, as they approach the the virtual fence line or the boundary line, it they get, like you said, an increasing auditory tone and it gets pretty loud and annoying. So once they've got, once they learn like, oh, this loud, annoying noise is followed up with, something that really doesn't feel that great on my neck, they rarely get to that shock, <laughs> excuse me, to that shock zone. So um, the first few days watching my, I had to turn all the notifications off, off on my phone because <laughs> if you don't, I mean, they, they have a very robust uh, uh, app platform for your phone, but it was like, I was getting, my battery died in a matter of like three hours. Like I, a fairly newish iPhone, right? So battery lasts all day. It died in three hours because it was getting so many push notifications. It was like caller 43, whatever is out outside the boundary or got shocked, got shocked again, got shocked again. This was during the, the training phase. And so I was like, okay, gotta, gotta limit that. <laughs> but uh, it was, it was only three or four days of intensive learning for them before they realized like, okay, when I hear that noise, I shouldn't go any further. And that is uh, just like the dog, you know, dogs learn it on the invisible fence type situation. 
Um, <clears throat> the cattle have really learned it. And I feel like they're almost more tempted than a dog because their food is right on the other side of this virtual boundary that they maybe don't understand why they can't go get that blade of grass. So it, it, it definitely works, which is interesting to see. I was a little bit skeptical, like whether it would work in our application, but it, it, it has worked so far. Okay. Well, I remember we spoke like we spoke once kind of during that training period and you said it wasn't going well. I'm like, well, that's fine. We'll circle back in a while and see how yeah. it's going. Um, so my personal anecdote, when I started first year, I did strip grazing 2019. Right. And I did it as a, I, I kind of did it as a, as a challenge and I did it as a favor for a friend. Cause he called me like everything just lined up. He called me. He's like, Hey, I got 125. I need somewhere for him to go. And I'm like, I got a place. If you'll let me move them every day and jam them in real tight. And he goes, I don't care. They just got to go somewhere. So I brought them out and you know, they're supposed to be there for like 120 days, 120 head, 120 days and 250 acre pasture. Yep. We're going to be moving every freaking day. And the first week was really rough. Like, I am not going to lie. The first week was interesting because these cows had never seen hot wire. Like he literally went and gathered them from an 800 acre pasture and brought them and dumped them off in me. And I've got them fenced into two and a half acres with a hot wire and they've never seen hot wire. That's, that's a steep learning curve. We, um, I'm not even, I wouldn't even say that we had a lot of wrecks. I would just say we had a lot of cattle that didn't want to respect that hot wire the first couple, the first you know, week or two. You just go out, you know, you just go find where they're at, shove them in a corner and build a fence around them. And then leave and come back a couple hours later. And if they've blown that out, you shove them in a corner and you build a fence around them. Just did that for eight or 10 days. And uh, then I didn't have any more problems. But then in 2020, um, I broke another group of cattle in to doing daily moves. You know, after, after you figured out the tricks to doing it once, the second time it gets a little easier, right? But then when we started teaching them bat latches, you know, those automatic automatic gate timers. It took them probably eight or 10 days to figure that out moving once a day. So I'm kind of having a theory. I think a cow needs to see something between 10 and 15 times before they understand it. And if you can show it to them five times a day, you might be able to do it in three or four days. If you're showing it to them once a day, take, take two weeks. Is that, how do you feel about that? I I think you're 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 spot on. Um, when we get a green group in, like yearling calves, uh, it is because normally we move with poly up up until this year uh, with that that group on that piece of property. <laughs> we'd be doing daily moves with with poly wire, and it can be a real struggle. I almost feel that it's worth holding one animal back like that one leader cow that really understood the program last year even if they're not in the same same category of size if you have a way to have that animal be the leader it you can probably cut that time in half so there's one animal that was in our program the previous summer got the daily moves and if there's one animal that understand it understands the the program the other one's 
seem to latch onto them and, and gain that knowledge much faster than if it's an entirely green group of animals that have never had daily moves before or might be a put together group from different calf producers. So there's, you have that other dynamic of like not a cohesive group yet, but right. if there's that one animal who's, who's brave takes one and then everybody else just seems to follow. So I, I played with it both ways. I've had wrecks and I've had disasters and then I've had really smooth transitions. Um, I think your time, your time frame is pretty, pretty on point. And just doing, you know, some more thinking, you know, the, there's, there's times where I'm only moving every three to five days, you know, sometimes two to four, sometimes three to five. In fact, when we get done with this, I got to go move a couple of herds. When I'm breaking in and I, I'm, I've been really spoiled because I've got a group of customer cows that have been on the ranch since October of 2021, Tim. Love you, buddy. Those cows, like I go out there and honk and holler and have the gate open. And five minutes later, they're all moved. I don't have to worry about it. When I want to catch them, like getting them in the pen, catching them, it's just so super easy. Just commingled um right out a month ago. Just brought in brought in some cows to commingle with mine. I think we've only moved them five, six times now. It's still a challenge. There's there's about 60 of his that just just don't understand the program. But there's a big bunch of them that just just melted right in with mine. Just drive out there and holler, and I've got a couple lead cows that love to come see me and lick my ear and eat cake out of my hand. Got <laughs> to <laughs> have a couple of those because those bring the rest. Those lead cows will bring the rest. Absolutely. W one thing I have noticed with a virtual fence or the no fence setup is we're not there every day. You know, they don't experience a human walking close to them, putting out a fence, taking up a fence, letting them through. So when we do go, there's still a level of flightiness that or unfamiliarity, I guess would be the term uh, with getting handled by either myself or either one of my employees. So it's like, that's a trade-off. You don't have to go every day and it's really easy to move their boundary on your phone, but then they're not as used to the human contact when you do go. So then they're like, ears are up and their stress level's a little bit higher. They're like, this is new. What, what's going on? Versus the days when, or the, when you're setting polywire, they know as soon as you show up, they know what's up. They're ready to go. So I, we noticed that this, my employees and I were just talking about this last maybe two weeks ago. Like the attitude changed between being there every day, setting polywire, being familiar with them, and then the no fence callers. I like that. I like that because I've I've had some of those same thoughts myself. And part part of the magic of cows is the connection between the human and the cows. And you know, when you're when you're moving daily. There's, you're out there in the poly wire moving them. I mean, and they don't have anywhere to go. It's not like it's a hundred acre pasture where they can run to the back corner if you're doing something they don't like. And over time, you know, setting up and breaking down that poly wire, they get really used to you. And one of the reasons that I went to bat latches is, is a training thing. I didn't want them to associate us building fence with them always getting moved right 
and call it part, call it kind of an experiment. But, you know, when you're out there the same time every day to set up your polywire, the cattle get trained and they'll stop doing what they're doing. They'll stop eating and look at you because they know you're there and they associate you're there. We're getting ready to go get food another place in the next 15 minutes. When you get them out of that habit and just in the habit that you're going to come out, you know, in front of them, be setting up polywire in front of them, you know, or taking it down right behind them. And then you, you leave for a couple hours and then the bat latch does its thing. They don't stop. Like I, I noticed them stopping grazing less when we were inconsistent with our fence building times because we were moving off the bat latch. Does that make sense? Yep. So do you have a time of day that you like to move your cows? Um, I know everybody says the higher the, the highest sugar contents in the in the afternoon, which I probably would agree with, but it doesn't fit our schedule. We typically move in the morning just because if something if you have a wreck or something goes wrong, you got all day to fix it. It's not at 4:30 and you want to be done at five and you have a two-hour wreck you have to recover from. So we typically go in the morning just for ease of uh if something goes sideways, we've got time to fix it before like everybody wants to be done for the day. So it's, we typically go in the morning and that just fits in with our very manic style of all the things that we have going on, you know, um, packing meat orders, doing home deliveries, servicing butcher shops and stores with orders. So it's like, you have to balance the, when do I move? Is it the ideal time? Because if you've got a, a, a whole bunch of orders you need to get done and then, you have a wreck and it's three, four hours before you can get back to say, fill in those orders that might throw off the delivery time for the next day. It's just, it always seems to snowball and um, get out of control. If I go later in the day. Okay. I, I get that. And I was just kind of wondering if anybody's ever actually done a study between moving cows at 8am and moving cows at 2pm. If there's, any differences in daily gain? Hmm. I don't know. That that would be interesting. And just just thinking about it though almost makes my brain explode. Like how to design that study? Because it needs to be as similar as possible. Like you need to have you know two groups of very similar animals, two groups of extremely similar forage to try it or or more and. The problem with replicating what you and I do, the problem with studying regenerative practices is we don't remove all the variables. We try to work with the variables, right? And when you're talking about crop science or animal science or soil science, they want to remove all the variables so they can control everything and know that and know exactly what had effect on its result. And I think that um, I think the world's just too complicated for 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 overall reductionist science works in some places, but the farther you zoom out, the more it breaks down. I would agree with that. That would it would be very tricky to to accurately measure that and compare 
yeah, it, it would be tricky to have two of the exact same things with the only variable being time or time of day. But I, there is also something to be said about, you know, every time you move cows, I mean, if you move them at 10, you move them at two or you move them at 6 p.m. Every time you move cows, they walk to that new pasture and they put their head down and go to eating. Even if they've already been eating all day, even if they're already full, it seems like whenever you move them somewhere new, they're going to eat no matter what. And they're going to, they're going to refill their rumens. So some of the arguments about moving four times a day, you're encouraging them to eat way more than they need and bypass that out. And I think that's great. It's very difficult for me to get four times a day on most of our property. Just, you know, so, is, you mentioned uh, your neighbor's cows earlier that they had to have legs shorter on one side than the other. I, I've got some pretty steep hills that are that are like that. Just hundreds and hundreds of acres that, yeah, it grows grass, but it's a thirty-five degree slope. You know, you can't even hardly walk up that. You know, you wouldn't even want to ski down that. <laughs> you know, and yeah, there's grass growing on there, and it, it's kind of fun when we do burn or have a wildfire. Because before the fire, you'll just see the hillside and it'll just be a steep hillside with grass. Then after it's burned, it looks like a, just looks like there's stair steps. There's just cattle paths, you know, going across the elevation. So they, they use it, but I could, I could kind of feel the need for cattle with shorter legs on one side because of some of the hills we have, but if they leaned over too much, they wouldn't be able to stand up straight in the wind and they just go to Nebraska from here. <laughs> in, in the spring flush, we do, we do move twice a day just to cover more ground, get those first bites on everything. So up until like June 10th, we're moving, you know, all of May in the first week and a half in, in June, we're moving twice a day. So <clears throat> at which, at which point I go, I don't really want to move twice a day every day for the rest of the season. That's a lot of moves. I'm kind of, I'm kind of still on a rapid move mode. I know it doesn't sound like, you know, three to five days is really rapid, but I'm 40 per, I'm my stocking rates, 40% of normal. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. I don't feel bad that I'm that far understocked for the rain that we've gotten. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm really understocked for the rain we've got. It just, I think it looks better than it is right now. I think people will be surprised of, of what the winter is going to bring. Well, you guys have taken it on the chin the last bunch of, bunch of years with being so dry. So it'd be a nice, nice switch potentially for you to have some good stock stockpile. And we've had a couple of really, really ugly, super cold snaps too. I mean, this last year, 2020, 23 wasn't bad. Oh man, that February 22 cold. Oh, that was rough. <laughs> but I got to take a quick break. I'll be back in just a minute and then we'll wrap this thing up. Right. Sounds good. I like coffee way too much. <laughs> it's uh, it's already 90 degrees here. So I'm, I'm well on the water. Uh, coffee was much earlier today. It's only supposed to be like 77 here today. 
what I wouldn't give for that. <laughs> but, <laughs> like almost 100% humidity and 90 right now. I, I think our humidity is probably going to be up there fairly high with almost three inches of rain overnight. Um, so, but I'll, I'll take 70, I'll take 77, 78 any day over 90. Like I lived in Virginia for eight years while I was in the Navy. There were days where it was like, you know, I'd look at the forecast and be like 82 and I'm like, Oh, it's not going to be that bad. I'd get off work on the boat. You know, you're carrying a trash sack, you know, down to the end of the pier. By the time you get there, you're just soaked. Yeah, 82 degrees, no wind, 99.8.5% humidity right on the ocean. No thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm not built for that. I'm built for like 50, 60, and that's good. I take hoodie weather any day. Like if I could wear a hoodie to work every day, 365 days a year and be comfortable, like that's, that's probably going to be my happy spot. I don't know where that exists though. Yeah, I've yet to find that also. So tell me what you like about the collars. I like the the tracking aspect of the collars. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, it would be kind of hard to show you on the screen here, but uh, I need to make a, a video on, on the social medias about the, the app itself, like the interface. It's really interesting to see where they go when they go into a new paddock, once they realize that the boundary is, has been moved and where do they go? Uh, in the app, there's a, a tracking feature. So you get like these really high green intensity areas where, where they like around a water tub or a salt lake or, or a mineral tub, but then also where they prefer to go inside the paddock. So I'm trying to figure out or correlate what, where they're spending time in each of the paddocks and what's there, what draws them there and what holds them there. Obviously, we know shade will do that, but this is in the wide open where there's no shade. So what's growing there and what is what's growing there solving a deficiency in their nutritional plane? Like, are they eating whatever it is because they're deficient in something or is it just because it's really sweet and it tastes good? Yeah, that's like that's the data that I'd be really interested to understand is why did they all go over there and eat that? Why did they ignore this other plant? Why did they eat this plant this morning and this plant this afternoon? Like, just being able to understand the grazing patterns of how they actually use a pasture would be so invaluable to me. I'm not sure that, uh, like, okay, invaluable. What the hell am I going to do with it? I don't know. But it'd just be really fascinating to understand, like, if they have certain areas that they consistently go to, you know, to loaf and ruminate and sleep. They have consistent areas where they go through, you know, throughout the day to eat certain things. Why are they going there? Well, let's go find out. Let's go clip that. Or let's go see, you know, let's go see how much of it they ate. Like, that's the kind of data that really, really fascinates me. Um. Will will the no fence collars also give you like health and activity like like a health picture or in an activity state so you can tell kind of what they're doing and if the animal's healthy or if you need to maybe bring that one in for some attention? Uh, it will warn you if the animal has or the collar, whether it's on the animal or has slipped off the animal, uh, hasn't moved in a number of hours. I think the threshold's like six. 
and then it'll start pinging you like, hey, this this color is not moved in six or eight hours. So maybe it's eight hours. I, I don't remember which. Um, so A, either you have an animal that is no longer uh, walking and maybe injured or maybe heat stressed out or you know whatever, or they've slipped the collar. So at least if they've slipped the collar, you can go find this collar. Uh, obviously, because you can on, on the on the app, you can do the little blue dot and you can walk right up to, you know, an individual co uh, collar icon. So you you it would be hard pressed to not find a collar that's come off. Um, as far as the health goes, um, I don't think they're quite at that level yet as far as, you know, in it would be cool if you could go and say, what's their temperature? They run in a fever. So they, they there is, a, I'm guessing down the road, that'll be a a feature. Um, I don't know how they would do it. I'm not a techie type person. I'm just a, a, a kind of a Luddite when it comes to that stuff. Um, but it would be really neat if you could see if, you know, kind of a Luddite, fever. but you're moving cows on your cell phone. Yeah, modified Luddite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, <laughs> um, it would be neat to see in the future, you know, like, are they off or are as far as what they're doing for activity, I don't think they're at the level of being able to identify that on the from the collar yet. Um, like just you know, grazing, resting, moving. You know whether uh, they're grazing or resting. Like I, I guess that would kind of be the just like the discrimination for me, because that would and that kind of plays back in with the heat map of where they were. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, yeah, we know they're going to congregate around shade. We're, they're going to congregate around water. But why'd they congregate the hell, you know, way the hell over the far corner of this thing where there's nothing there? Why'd they congregate there? Well, were they congregating their resting or were they congregating their eating? Those would be really good data points. And it may be that I haven't figured out how to do that on the app yet. <laughs> Maybe it's there and I haven't discovered that layer uh, inside the app or inside the, the caller control panel. Um, but it, I, I feel like the, the data you do get is uh, number of tones, like uh, auditory warning tones, and then number of electronic pulses. <clears throat> and there are always the ones that test the boundary. Like every time they're the ones that get like 10 tones a day or, or a number of pulses a day. And it's always the same critters, always the same critters. And then there are ones that get like, no pulses, no tones a day that are definitely like the hangbacks and watch and are maybe the smarter ones because they let the dumb ones go find the edge um, or the brave ones, I should say. If I get a phone call that there's a cow on the highway, I could probably tell you what her tag number is. <laughs> yep. Yep. But there's there's just going to be some in every group that are going to be more curious and some that are less curious. Just like people, you know, there's some of us that want to ask more questions. There's some of us that ask some really dumb questions, and there's some people that don't ask questions at all. And there's going to be cows that challenge that stuff. You know, and the the cow that I'm specifically thinking of, she's what I'd call a four iron cow. Like there's a different brand on, you know, at least four different parts of her. Uh, each one of her ears had at least two holes in it. You know, so she'd been around a block but she's given me some good calves, uh, but her horns, her horns are just, just have scratches all up and down the front side. Like 
chick, I know what those scratches are from. Like those are only made by barbed wire. <laughs> your head through fences. I know what you're doing. So she's always say like, she's a problem child. Like, she is she is she always on the cusp of going to town. Um, she has been scheduled to go to town. So she was scheduled to go to town last fall, but she jumped out of the trailer and then jumped out of the corrals and then beat a five wire fence to go back and stand in the middle of the herd. She's committed. So the next time she gets loaded, she's not getting loaded in a freaking half top trailer again. <laughs> <laughs> full top, full sides. Next time she's captured, she's getting in a trailer, full top, full sides. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. So yeah. And she's a special case. Everybody's got <laughs> one. And if you don't, you're probably not being truthful. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So <clears throat> what would you like to see? What would you like to see improved on the callers? So what I've noticed over the last whatever 40 odd days, 45 days that they've been out there. <laughs> uh I'm not sure the battery is up for daily moves because you you update the callers one of two ways. It's either via cell signal if you have the cellular service in your area or Bluetooth. And that is you got to be within 150, 200 feet of the collar. So oh, there's a number of things I'll, I'll kind of run down my wish list on improvements. But the first thing would be battery life. So if you're doing a lot of pasture moves, creating a new paddock, assigning them to a new paddock, they move into the new paddock and then they get tones and pulses as they um, learn the new paddock. And that for us, it's like almost every day. Um, the bat, <laughs> excuse me, the battery life uh, has been dropping a little bit alarmingly. Like where some of them are at 50% right now and they've only been out for 40 days. There is a solar panel on the unit, but I don't know that if it, it is potent enough or strong enough to keep up with the daily moves. Like I, I don't necessarily know the history of how they're used in Norway and Scandinavia. Are they giant paddocks that these animals are turned out in and they just stay inside it or if they get updated regularly or move daily? So since we're using it as a replacement to polywire strip grazing, there's a lot of updating, a lot of communication with like the no fence server, the satellite, so I, I think there's a bigger battery battery drain <clears throat> than if we just turned them out into a hundred acre pasture and left them for 20 days. You know what I mean? Or like a, a modified slow set stock, I guess you would say, which I'm sure the battery would do, would weather much better than the daily updates. So not, not to bring in another brand name, mm -hmm. but you know, the, there are a couple other, brands of these callers out sure. there you know this isn't necessarily like a, a sales pitch for no offense or anything or no, any no, others no. um but that that's always been one of the things that i've seen with the caller system or the caller systems is yes we're going to try to use them as a replacement for polywire battery life could be an issue and for me where i see the use case for these callers would be for somebody that's got like a that lives in the foothills of the mountains. 
okay, that's got some lower country that they're at, you know, maybe in the winter. And they've got the high country that they're at in the summer. And the high country, you know, they're not going to walk over a 14,000 foot mountain range. I mean, your sheep might, your cows probably are not because cows are just too lazy. And there's also, you know, some natural type barriers, you know, in that kind of movement. And you're on a larger landscape and not quite on daily moves. I, th- I think that's more the use case and, and the original use, you know, from Scandinavia and Norway that they had is, you know, they're down the valleys for some of the year. Okay. We don't want to all fence this off, but it's the same thing. We'll just, you know, put them in here. Then before we send them up to the mountains, we change batteries on the collars and they go to the mountains and we keep track of them, move them around a little bit. But the, the battery life is, and the alert, that's, you know, I think that's the challenge. I think that's the challenge is getting a light enough battery that lasts long enough to do what the caller needs to do. And you know, batteries are great. I think, you know, the modern technology batteries are great. Light years ahead of where, you know, lead acid batteries and double A's were when we were kids. But there's still, I think we're still a technological incremental leap away from batteries being where they need to be like we need to have another technological leap in in energy density storage to make batteries effective and viable like battery powered airplanes yeah not quite there and that's that's the driver i mean even cars like a tesla tesla weighs like five thousand pounds and half of that is the freaking battery so I, that's a challenge that I hope, I hope will be solved. And then that will allow us to do, you know, better battery storage would allow us to do callers on a daily move a lot more effectively, or like, like what Hobbs is doing four times a day, four times a day would be, would be pretty cool. That, that would be, I, <clears throat> that would be ideal. I just thought of something. There's, um, on the battery life there, because this is a pilot study, there's like the, the folks at the dairy innovation center who have logins to these callers. There's myself, my two employees, and then I think a, a sixth person. So I don't know if, <clears throat> because we're all so curious, we're logging in, looking, logging in, looking, and it's pinging the callers that that is also a drain on the battery. So I can't be a hundred percent that it's the, um, daily moves. Like if it were one phone, one person dealing with them, and you're not checking them all the time because we're curious. This is a new thing. So every time we open an app, it pings the callers. So I wonder if, or if you leave the app open, again, I'm not a tech expert, but I wonder if that has also contributed to the drawdown of the battery because we're also curious on it and want to see where they are and what they're doing. And we have a whole lot of eyes looking in on the same callers that maybe wouldn't be an accurate representation if it's like the ranch operator and one employee. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think I was under the impression that like just interrogating the caller didn't, didn't have a high energy cost. It was the alert and the shock that was, that was a real high energy cost. Gotcha. You know, I think real time location monitoring is, is pretty energy, energy costly as well. Um, so there's two other brands of callers besides no fence right aware of and 
one of them I know that I've talked to, like they specifically had their their uh, their polling time turned down to help with battery life. Like I think they only pulled callers, you know, every five or ten minutes. Which honestly, you know, five or ten minutes. If the animal's moving, it's going to be moving. It's going to be grazing. It's going to be grazing, and you're going to have, you know. I don't really need to know any more than a you know a five or a six minute slice of what that animal did. I don't need to know. I don't think I need to know second by second. You know, having the data of where they are and you know in six minute blocks, you know tenth of an hour blocks, and what they're doing would be, I think, it would be incredibly useful. And <clears throat> we both got coughing fits this morning. <laughs> I know. And even more for that, like. You know, long-term wise, being able to take a grazing heat map and overlay that with, you know, a carbon storage, you know, how did, how did our grazing do? What effect did we have on carbon storage? That is something I think would be really interesting to find out long-term is what what animal impact, what effect animal impact really has on carbon storage and how that relates to forage production and root growth. So <laughs> I guess if there's somebody out there that wants to run a study on how effective grazing is at sequestering carbon, we can probably figure out how to do that with some soil sampling and with some, uh, with some collars. I'm actually in one now that you mentioned that. A uh, five-year-long uh, intensive, you know, a managed intensive grazing study to really see put numbers with what I what we all know is going on on the surface, like increased forage, but really know what's going on in the soil to see if there what level of carbon are we sequestering, what level of water infiltration are we improving, are we building topsoil at what rate, you know, and and just looking at all the the microbiology again, that's stuff that I'm not super familiar with, but there's a the Vermont Land Trust and a couple other operators are, are doing this five-year-long study on our ground, on ground that is fairly new into managed intensive grazing, either from <clears throat> set stocking or hay production. So it's so we have like a, a negative baseline or a baseline of not what we what our operation does, and we'll see what what we can do in five years. Very cool. Is now is that just a measurement and? measurement data collection type study or do you have or are they working with somebody um and paying you for the carbon storage uh, i think that's the the end goal is to, to be able to access the carbon markets on a smaller scale since we're not you know thousands of acres like operations out west we're like most operations here are a few hundred acres maybe <clears throat> so if we can quantify what we're doing i think that they're trying to open up the smaller scale carbon markets in the future um so they're doing deep, they're doing like deep core samples. They're doing um, surveys of, of what's on the top. We're doing grab samples three times a season. Uh, and then they're doing a forage analysis to see how things are shifting or improving or going the other way, depending on hopefully not the other way, but uh, how they're improving. Uh, so it, it'll be really interesting to see all this compiled. We're, we're just in summer two of this whole thing. So it's uh It'll be interesting to see the results in, in a few more years. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see the results and and whatever they come out with. Um, very interested. So, 
man, I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Those rabbit trails disappear, right? Yeah, they disappear. Uh, My phone's been blowing up. I've got, you know, like cow drug salesman and banker both been calling me. It's like, guys, just (laughs) leave me alone. Give me another like 30 minutes here. I'll call everybody back. I promise. (laughs) Um, what would you change about the callers? What would, what do you want to be? What would you want to be different? Um, from the updating pastures, uh, I, I think it seems, and again, I don't know if this is a setting I've missed inside the program, but if, if you're trying to update them Bluetooth, it goes one at a time. So it's like, goes to this one updates, goes like sequentially. So for, and that's not even a very big group of 60, you know, say you have a couple hundred, hundred mother cows, no cell service. You've got to, it would take a long time for you to Bluetooth update every one of them to a, to a move. So if there was a way to like mass broadcast it and do it all like in one ping, that would be easier for the operator. So what we found is we know kind of where we're going to move them uh, before we go. So we set the new paddock before we go there to, either move their water or verify that everybody's moved ahead. So it might be 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour before we know we're going to be by that property to lay eyes on them. Just so we're not sitting there waiting for the callers to all update. Luckily we have good cell service there. It's like our town cell tower is 400 yards away, like direct line of sight. And that's why we, why we chose that property. So it wasn't like a, a a real remote piece. Well, I'm going to tell you, just because you have cell phone towers, three of them within two miles doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have good service because mine has just been less than stellar for about two weeks. I've had people people complain that they couldn't even call me. Like, phone, <laughs> what's going on with your phone? It's not even ringing. I'm like, it's not even ringing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem or the benefit, I guess. Yeah. Well, your phone's not ringing not a problem for me because i don't <laughs> answer it when it's not ringing <laughs> no. all right i gotta start moving out of here um where can we find you on the internet people want to learn more uh, <clears throat> on the on the snow sh- on the socials as uh snug valley farmer tiktok instagram snug valley farm on facebook and snug valley all right not, not very hard to find i guess Okay. I mean, consistent branding is good. Try, try. All right. Anything you want to close out with today? Oh, just thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciated it. All right. Well, I appreciate you. It's been a great chat and um, I hope everybody learned a little bit about Ben and no fence callers today. Thank you very much, Brian. All right. Get out there and have a great week. We'll see you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.